Hi, good morning. My name is Eric Ramachis, a member of MPC, and I serve with the choir and the worship band. Our reading this morning is from 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. It can be found in the Pew Bible on page 238, 238. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked upon Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, good morning and a warm welcome to McLean Presbyterian. Whether you're worshiping in our sanctuary or in our fellowship hall or even online, we are glad that you're with us. My name is James Forsyth and it's my privilege to open up in God's word with you this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 16. I'm just back from Bonnie, Scotland. I made it in time to see my grandfather before he died last Sunday. I stuck around to speak at the funeral on Friday. He was a great man. He lived well and he died well. And it was encouraging to be reminded that when the rubber meets the road, even in the face of death itself, the gospel is true. And it's enough for him and for us as well this morning. Grateful, uh, as always, for the great team that we have here at the church. You know, it's a sign of a healthy church when the senior pastor can just disappear and the other pastors and staff carry on and the church doesn't miss a beat. We're uh, blessed to have the team we do, we do here. Now, though, before we uh, turn to God's word, let's go to him in prayer.
Father in heaven, you are the God of life. You're the God of death. (laughs) And we thank you that in Jesus Christ, you're the God of resurrection. And so we pray for that resurrection power, the spirit of Christ himself to be with us now, Lord, as we come to you in your word, that in these moments we would see Christ and that it would make a difference to our lives. We pray it in his beautiful name. Amen. Amen. The gospel in the life of David. This morning we start a new series. It's going to be a a longer series for us that will take us through to the summer months. The gospel in the life of David. I read this week that uh, the life of David is the longest biography in ancient literature. It's quite a fact. In all of ancient literature, the life of David is the longest narrative that we have. Now, of course, today that record has been broken. Everyone from Mandela to Madonna have longer biographies now, uh, some certainly uh, worth more than others. Uh, But here we come to the story of David. And what's the story about? Well, here's the best summary I've heard. It's about the search for the true king. The search for the true king. And this search begins in our passage this morning. I encourage you to take your your Bible from the pew rack or even pull it up on your phone. We're going to enjoy our way through this text together and then highlight a couple of takeaways at the end. First thing we need to do is step into our time machine and go back some 3,000 years. In verse 1, we'll step out and bump into Samuel. Samuel, who is Israel's prophet, Israel's priest, and Israel's judge. He is as important a leader as you can find in the land. Now, Samuel is an amazing man. He is loaded with courage. He is loaded with wisdom. But today we read, he's feeling blue. There's a rain cloud over his head and there's drizzle in his soul. Why? The text tells us it's because of Saul. Now we're going to learn more about Saul in this series, but for now we need to know that Saul is Israel's current king. Israel's current king, but he's not a very good king. In fact, that's an incredible understatement. He is a king whose story is one of rebellion and rejection. He has rebelled against God, and so God has rejected him as king. It is never a good idea to take God on. We do not have what it takes. He is still the undefeated, undisputed champion of the world. Well, while Samuel is lamenting Saul's downfall, this undisputed champion has already moved on. Human leaders come and go, but God's work is unrelenting. And so, see there, he comes to Samuel in verse 1 and says, Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. See what God is saying? He's saying, okay, Saul, messed up. But I'm not going to allow my rule or reign to be impacted by this bozo. My work continues, it's time to anoint a new king, and I've already picked him out. He's one of Jesse's sons. Now, verse 2, hearing this command, Samuel's tears turn into fear. 
Why? Well, look at what he says. There's just one teeny tiny problem with this cunning plan. How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Kings tend to be unhappy when you go and anoint someone else as king. And knowing this, he is afraid. But look, God's already thought of this and has planned a cover-up. Verse 2, take a cow with you and you, when you arrive in Bethlehem, tell them you've just come to make a sacrifice. Verse 3, then call for Jesse and all his boys to join you. Samuel doesn't have a lot to go on. God leaves a lot of the details blank, but under the cover of this cow, he heads off to Bethlehem. And never let fear of the unknown stop you from serving God. <laughs> God always has a plan. He's always thought of all the details. And when you look back, you'll see how. Well, in verse 4, look at with me. Samuel arrives in Bethlehem, and he's greeted by what we could call a nervous group of elders. Why? Because Samuel is the moral conscience of the nation, the moral conscience of Israel. So when he shows up, people just automatically feel a little bit guilty. It's kind of like when you're driving along the road and you see a police car, you just put the brakes on, right? Even if you're not speeding, you just feel like, you know, I'm, I'm, am I about to be in trouble? I see you, police officer, Field. Um, <laughs> Samuel is the Tim Field of the Old Testament, yes. Um, <laughs> he's the moral conscience of the nation, so when he shows up, people feel nervous. What do they want? They want what does he want, they wonder, as they start to ring their clammy hands. Have we done something wrong? Is this some kind of disciplinary visit, perhaps? And so, in a high-pitched squeak, they ask him, have you come in peace? Well, verse 5, see Samuel, he acts all nonchalant and says, oh yeah, nothing to worry about. I'm just here to offer this sacrifice. Come and join me. And hey, why not go and get Jesse and his boys to join us as well? So, We get to verse 6, and everyone has arrived, and immediately Saul thinks he's found the new king. As soon as everyone gathers, he's pretty sure that he knows who God has in mind. Jesse's oldest son, Eliab, is a stud. Big, rugged lad with devilishly good looks. He's like the kind of William Wallace of the day. You remember Braveheart? Yeah. Well, one of the key reasons, one of the many reasons, but one of the key reasons why Mel Gibson should never have played William Wallace is that Wallace was not just jacked, but supposedly really tall. We don't know exactly how tall, but we do have his sword. His sword is kept in the William Wallace Museum in Stirling, Scotland, and his sword is five feet six inches long. That's taller than the average man in Wallace's day. And scholars agree that to carry a sword this large, Wallace must have been at least 6'6", probably north of that height. When Wallace walked in the room, everyone knew it. When you pick teams to go and fight the English, well, you picked him first, right? And that's Eliab. Eliab is a striking dude with a commanding presence. The second he walks in, Samuel looks at him and thinks, sweet. Let's anoint him as king, get home in time for dinner. Well, verse 7, God has other ideas. Look at this verse. It's the key verse of our text. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He's saying, 
you're judging this book by its cover. But I'm not looking on the outside. I'm looking within. And when I look within, this is not the one that I have chosen to be Israel's king. Now from here, verses 8 through 10, uh, things get just a little bit awkward. At first, Jesse, the father, is surprised that his oldest son has been rejected, but he's still got lots of options. And so in verse 8, he presents his second hunkiest son, Abinadab, uh, but Samuel says, no, it's not the one. Okay, Jesse thinks, verse 9, he nudges the third eldest forward, and again, Samuel says, no, not the one. Then in verse 10, look at it, the rest of the brood are paraded before Samuel, and one by one he rejects them all. And so the brothers look down and they kick the dirt, and the onlookers look nervously to the sky, and Jesse feels a little bit apologetic. Seven sons, seven knows. Nobody really knows what to say. So in verse 11, Samuel says, well, um, any other sons? <laughs> Jesse's response is telling. Look at it there. He says, there remains yet the youngest. Now the Hebrew word for youngest here means insignificant. He's saying, there remains yet the runt. But we didn't even invite him. He's away looking after the sheep. Robert Alter, who's a renowned Jewish professor of Hebrew at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, brings great clarity to this scene by describing it this way. By his sheer youth, David has been excluded from consideration. He is a kind of male Cinderella, left to his domestic chores instead of being invited to the party. Instead of an elder brother, even a younger brother of seven sons, seven, the Hebrew number for completion, David is the eighth child, and symbolically, therefore, not even there at all. But Samuel knows that God sees what is often unseen. And so in verse 11, he summons the boy to be brought, and in verse 12, a confused-looking lad shows up smelling of sheep. Now, it's worth noting just this interesting detail in verse 12 that David, like his brothers, is also a good-looking lad. Now, we've just been told that Eliab was rejected, that God didn't look on outward appearance, but here it's kind of affirmed to us that, that David is also good-looking. We're told three things. Look, we're told he has beautiful eyes. We're told that he is handsome. We're told that he is ruddy. Now, I kid you not, the Hebrew word for ruddy, do you know what it means? Red. <laughs> the inerrant word of God telling us that gingers are the best looking, okay? <laughs> yeah. No redhead going to give me an amen on that. Okay, okay. So when David shows up, he doesn't drag himself in like some sort of Quasimodo, right? He uh, isn't a, a bad-looking dude. God wasn't looking for somebody ugly. The point is this. It's not that ugly is better than beautiful. The point is that physical appearance is completely irrelevant. Completely irrelevant. It doesn't matter either way. And so God tells Samuel that this one, the youngest one, the insignificant one, the runt, is, in fact, the one. And so verse 13, Samuel anoints him as king, and the Spirit of God rushes 
upon him. God never calls us to do anything without also equipping us to do that which he has called us to. And so by the end of our section, we have a new king, and it's not the king that anyone expected. Well, let's go back to verse 7. Having gotten our arms around this story, let's go back to verse 7 as we consider how this passage applies to our own lives. And note just a couple of things. Verse 7, the key verse in our text. You see it? For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Two quick things from this text. First, the Bible is encouraging us to remember that we, point one, tend to be obsessed with outward appearance. We are obsessed with outward appearance. Now, if this was true some 3,000 years ago, the problem's only gotten worse today. We tend to be a people who focus not just first, but second, third, and fourth on the external, on things that are actually quite superficial and shallow. This is true, perhaps, in how we obsess about outward appearance physically. You know, no people in the history of the world have paid much attention to what they look like as we do. We have mirrors and scales. We have gyms and hairdressers. We have stylists and even surgeons. You know, just in America in 2016, there were 17.1 million cosmetic plastic surgeries. I think our forefathers would have laughed. We don't just obsess about outward appearance physically, though. We also obsess about outward appearance materially. We are the richest people, not just across the globe, but in the history of the world, and yet we're also in more debt than the rest of history combined. Americans owe some $1 trillion in credit card debt. Our houses and our closets and our garages are full of stuff, and yet we still feel dissatisfied when we compare ourselves to others. We obsess about outward appearance physically and materially, but also even socially. In this town, we want to know the right people. We want to drop the right names. We want to have an impressive title. We want to send our kids to the right schools, and we want to be humble about it all on social media. And perhaps for some of us this morning, we obsess about outward appearance, not just physically, not just materially, not just socially, but perhaps spiritually as well. Falling into a pattern whereby we're relating with God in in a very superficial surface way. So dress up nice and get to church and pray that your kids behave in the service and grab a cup of coffee and throw a 20 in the plate and smile on your way out and hope that it's enough to somehow appease God until next week. We're a people that obsess with outward appearance. In fact, in our culture, outward appearance is the air that we breathe. It's it's natural to us, and so it's important to fairly regularly prod ourselves on this, to prod ourselves on how we have fallen into this. How much time and energy do you spend on what you look like? How much time and energy do you spend on the things that you own? How much time and energy do you spend thinking about what other people think of of you. The Bible says, you know the Bible says all these things will perish, spoil, or fade. Do you know what, friends? You will get wrinkly. Your possessions will rust. And you and I 
will die and we will be forgotten. It's the reality of the world and yet we get so obsessed with these things and friends, wouldn't it be a witness, wouldn't it be a great witness if we lived life differently, if we weren't so obsessed with all the things the world's obsessed about? If we didn't obsess with our appearance. So in fact, we celebrate stretch marks as a mother's glory. And we take our possessions and we give them to the poor. And we spend more time worrying about other people than we spend worrying about what we think they think of us. You know, we want to appear to the world a little weird, but we want to be weird for disarming reasons. (laughs) And not obsessing about the things the world obsesses about will help us to get there. We want to be a people who obsess over the right things, even the right things starting now. Point one, we tend to be obsessed with outward appearance. Secondly, though, and more critically in this text, we see not only that we tend to obsess about outward appearance, but secondly, that God, in contrast, God is obsessed with your heart. God's not obsessed with outward appearance. God is obsessed with your heart. Look at the verse. It says, the Lord does not see as man sees. He sees things differently. He doesn't look at life the way that we tend to look at life. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's one to underline in your Bibles this morning. Now, when the Bible talks about your heart, it's talking about your your inner life. It's talking about the, the essence of who you are. So God saw David and he didn't just see him physically. He saw who David really was. What did he see? What was David's heart like? Well, we know from the scriptures that his heart wasn't perfect and his heart certainly wasn't sinless. In fact, he's going to give us some pretty spectacular examples of his sinful heart in the weeks to come. And yet in this passage, the Lord sees his heart and sees that his heart truly desires to walk with the Lord. We're told earlier in 1 Samuel that he had a heart after God's own heart. Not a heart that's good enough to save him, but the kind of heart that God wants on Israel's throne. As we apply this to ourselves this morning, we realize that God doesn't just see David's heart. He doesn't just see the essence of David. He doesn't just see who David really is, but he can see our hearts as well. God sees our inner lives as well, that God sees you this morning. And he doesn't just see what you do. He also sees who you are, your drives, your desires, your motivations, and your your inclinations. Every thought and every passion, the things that you keep hidden from others, and even the things that you haven't yet realized about yourself. God sees them all. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that a little unnerving. God knows what you're thinking right now. I don't know what you're thinking right now, right? Are you listening? I don't know, but God knows. Are you thinking about lunch? I don't know, but God knows. Have you got fears for tomorrow? I don't know, but but God knows. And he doesn't just know what these things are. He knows why you're thinking them. 
It's an, unner- an unnerving thing for us to imagine ourselves standing naked before God with every deed and worse, every thought laid bare, and that he won't be fooled by our height or our beauty or our kindness or our respectability by our church attendance or some kind of theological sensibility. He will see us as we really are, and that this is no mere imagining. Oh, if we did stand before God like that, this is our reality even now this morning. The Lord looks at the heart. Now, for me, when I hear that God's obsessed with the heart, in my brokenness, in my sin, do you know what I think we all say? We all say, I need a new heart. And because God is obsessed with our hearts, in the gospel, that's exactly what we have. Exactly what we have. Throughout this series, we're going to see David's failures as a king. He's not the true king. He's not the king that can save God's people. A new king needs to come, and come he will. He will come from David's descendants, and he'll be born in the town of Bethlehem. And even like David, he'll be anointed with the Spirit. But unlike David, there'll be nothing about his appearance that will draw us to him. And he will carry no sacrifice because he will be the sacrifice and he won't just be forgotten by his father. He'll be forsaken by his father on the cross. You understand this morning that when we say God is obsessed with your heart, that's not an ominous statement. That should be a cause for celebration. He's not obsessed with your heart like some kind of frowning nit picky parking attendant just waiting to catch you doing wrong. He's obsessed with your heart, but not to condemn it. He's obsessed with your heart that he might save it. This is the promise of the gospel that Christ has come, that our hearts are washed in the blood of the lamb, that God desires our hearts, but he would never ask anything from us that he hasn't already given to us. And so in Christ, we are made new. It's funny, isn't it? The life of David, the longest biography in ancient literature. And it's not even really about him. It's about the search for a king and the king that will come in Christ. Throughout this series, we're going to learn how this gospel plays out in our lives, how it transforms our hearts. But it all begins when we receive a new heart given to us in Christ the King. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that we do live in a world that is obsessed with outward appearance. A world where we're so caught up with what we look like physically, with what we own materially, with how we appear socially. And Lord, we even confess that this obsession with outward appearance has, has bled into how we think spiritually as well. We, we fall into thinking that our standing before you is dependent upon how we perform on the outside. And Lord, that is a lie and a lie from hell. Because the good news of the gospel is that you don't see like we see. While we are obsessed with outward appearance, you are obsessed with the heart. Not that you might look upon us in mere judgment, but that you might look upon us with grace to give us salvation in the true King 
who was to come and has now come, even Jesus Christ. So this morning, Lord, we offer our new hearts back to you. We receive forgiveness in his name and ask, Lord, that you would begin more and more to help us see the world as you do. We pray it all in the name of the King Jesus. Amen.